Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the For the Love of Data podcast. I'm your host, Robert Furr, an IT consultant with Capco out of Dallas, Texas. And today we are going to look at the top 10 data-related predictions for 2017. So this is a list that I've put together based on some research, trends that I'm seeing. And uh, so we're going to go through these. They'll be linked up on the show notes. We'll have lots of links embedded in each one of them. Uh, so please check that out. Uh, but before we get started, I just want to wish everyone a happy holiday season. I hope you guys are out there getting to spend some time with your families or getting good breaks from work or maybe even getting a little bit of time on some ski slopes. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm going to try to make that one of my uh, resolutions for 2017. So let's kick things off with number 10. And this is that data borders will break down. Logical data lakes and logical data warehouses are something that we heard about a lot in 2016 as different product companies uh, came out with offerings for that. And also because uh, different groups started recommending certain architectures that, uh, that leveraged this. Now, logical data lakes and, and logical data warehouses mean that you put your data in in a raw form or with minimal transformation, uh, and then you use software or metadata tools on top of it to persist a logical structure that uh, can be presented to people that are, that are reading from it using various tools. Um, so companies like Denoto have products that will uh, have data, data virtualization products that are good at this. Also, data preparation tools like the new Project Maestro from Tableau will allow people to seamlessly pull from on-premise databases and Excel files, cloud repositories like Redshift and Bigtable, and hosted products like Workday and Salesforce. So I really think you will start seeing a lot more multi-source reporting from a variety of different on-premise, off-premise sources. Um, you'll see that in some of the tools, like I said, with Tableau, maybe direct pulls of data from those different places. Uh, but then with tools like Denodo, you'll actually see people building logical warehouses that, uh, that assemble those things on the fly. Number nine is data quality and refined data sets will become more important now. Refined, I put in quotes, um, because with the uptick of big data, sensor data, and data lakes, users are going to have a glut of information at their disposal. Some people um, call this a data swamp, and some people are already already have this problem, or uh, they already see some quote unquote failures with uh, data lakes and, and big data because they've got so much data they don't know what to do with it. Um, they don't know what the data quality is, they don't know where it came from, they don't know how complete it is, they don't even know necessarily if a single column that allows characters always has numbers in it or has a mixture of numbers and text. Um, which is one of the drawbacks of the unstructured data uh, and the features that it offers. Um, so automated solutions that assess data quality or specially created intermediate, intermediate data sets will become more and more important. In many data lake architectures and Hadoop-based systems, curated or moderately processed data sets are already becoming the norm for widespread usage by enterprises. Data scientists and power users will continue to harness raw data sets for their explorations, but these refined data sets will be used to reduce heavy lifting and, and recreating the wheel for many analysts. So if you take a look at some of the data lake architectures that are out there today, you see sort of a raw staging area that is, you know, bring in everything from the source just as it is, no transformations, just land there. And then you'll see a lot of people recommending some refined or some curated data sets or some intermediate data sets. There's a lot of different terms, but they all mean the same thing. And it's really just a little bit of ETL or a little bit of data quality assessment 
or a little bit of data preparation that goes into those intermediate data sets to make it easier to integrate them with other intermediate data sets or make it more of a format that businesses, uh, business analysts uh, recognize, like formatting phone numbers or social security numbers and things like that. And so again, I think you know before Data Lake was, hey, dump everything out there, they, um, just get it raw from the systems and then you can transform it as, as you see fit. But now people are understanding that while that is valuable and it's always gonna be valuable for some people, having these intermediate data sets where that is already done is gonna be more and more important. Number eight, collaborative BI and analytics will become more mainstream. So sites like data.world, which is a really interesting site if you haven't seen it, um, and collaborative features and products such as Tableau will be embraced by more users than ever before in 2017. Um, taking cues from social media, these tools and techniques will produce more living data sets and visualizations with near real-time data as static reporting continues to decline as a percentage of overall reporting. Users will interact with each other and gain economies of scale by not reinventing the wheel again in this, uh, in this aspect when someone else has already done the heavy lifting. Um, so what I'm talking about here is if you, if you go out there and take a look at data.world if you haven't seen it, it's a place where anyone can upload a data set and they can supply some metadata about it, they can supply a Python notebook that works with it, there's a query tool that lets you query from it and actually lets you query from different uh, data sets on their site. But it's really just a, a social place where you can post a data set, people can ask you to make modifications to it, they can even take your data and add things to it. So it's, a, it's really a living, breathing place where data can live and people can leverage each other's experience and, uh, and the data that other people have collected. Um, you'll, you have this already in enterprise data warehouses, but it's much more controlled. Um, there's a little bit more freedom in a site like data.world. Uh, the drawback of that is sometimes it's a little more raw. Um, but I think inside enterprises and outside, you're going to see a, a lot more collaboration and a lot more uh, social media type aspects of data where people are talking to each other about data. You don't just have people going off in a corner and assembling all this data and coming in and bringing a, a polished report um, or bringing a structured relational database system for people to query. It's going to be a lot more collaborative, a lot more iterative, and so look for products and sites that offer those types of features. Number seven, Internet of Things, IoT, will continue to expand. I think this one's pretty obvious for uh, a lot of people. Um, but what's really interesting uh, to me is using Internet of Things and sensor data uh, to do predictive maintenance and to try to automate some of the things that companies already do that are very important, um, but they may be able to use data like they've never used before um, to find some new approaches to, uh, to the things that they're doing. So currently, most firms use an age or a time-based approach to maintain and replace equipment. So every three or six months, they may in inspect certain equipment, or they may say that uh, a piece of equipment or a server has a three-year lifespan, so it's got to be rotated out after three years. But according to the ARC advisory group, uh, up to 50% of the spend that is done using these age or time-based approaches may be wasted because they found that 82% of failures occur randomly. They don't occur based on a specific age of a product. So new sensors are going to be deployed and real-time data will continue to swing upward across many industries. Businesses will be able to use this data to respond to events like power outages as they occur and use predictive analytics and historical information for preventative maintenance. Using this data will allow companies to move from a time-based or a cyclical check 
schedule to event-based ones that can detect even small changes in performance that may spell trouble. So if you've got a fleet of airplanes, you can use sensor data across all of those to um, see what's expected and when the smallest deviation from that happens, you can go out and you can uh, inspect the equipment or you can start uh, ro uh, replacing it as needed. So again, preventative maintenance is a huge place that you can do that, but also just getting that sensor data uh, from places that it's never been uh, before is going to create a lot more opportunities um, for companies to uh, produce new offerings, to um, you know things like we've seen in the past couple of years with like advanced meters from uh, power generators and, and doing time of use billing and things like that. So I think we'll see that from more and more industries and more and more companies are going to invest in it because we're really getting to the uh, kind of crossing the peak for Internet of Things sensor data and I think, I think it's going to go more mainstream starting in 2017. Number six, converged intelligence will improve our lives. Now, I think a lot of people already have seen this in bits and pieces. If you've got a, an Amazon Echo or the, the Google Home product, um, you know, you'll, you'll be able to, you've experienced this in your daily life. But the trend for companies to share data sets and provide APIs to their services will allow more collaborative experiences to help customers and will also allow companies to differentiate themselves from their competitors. Services like If This Then That. Um, so if this and that, the abbreviation is IFTT. If you haven't checked out that website, it's really cool. Um, they offer different connections, um, largely driven by community contributions. And there are a lot of different products that are uh, that are offering that type of an approach to their services. Um, but it lets you take data from different services and link them and take actions based on it. So, you know, you can have um, a recipe and if this then that that says you know, check the weather forecast for my zip code, and if it says it's going to rain tomorrow, then send me a text message saying that I need to do that. Um, there's partnerships like SolarCity, Nest, and the Tesla Powerwall that are all sharing data to produce synergies that can save money and reduce energy dependence. Um, so they actually have, if you have SolarCity solar panels on your house, you have a Nest thermostat, and you have a Tesla Powerwall, the three of those can communicate together, and it will look at the price of power and decide whether it's more economical for you to draw power from the grid or from your power wall and do what's called power shaving um, to try to uh, to try to eke out even microscopic cost savings um, to help you out with your electric bills. Uh, I think people are going to leverage the Internet of Things, um, which you can see number seven above, um, for devices and home automations like the SmartThings Hub to make us more comfortable. Now, whether it's automatically adjusting your lights and your TV and your devices when you want to watch a movie or automatically adjusting your thermostat when you leave and arm your alarm, connected living is going to grow. Um, right now, I don't think it's at a point where you would do this based on economics. It's definitely a, a luxury thing to have. But it is a lot of fun to see some of the combinations that, that companies and partnerships and even just community contributors are making um, in this area. So... A word of caution here though, data sharing may be open and driven by users opting in, but in some instances I think it will be hidden and it's going to be used to exploit customers without their knowledge. Uh, now I don't have a lot of details behind this, but uh, you know one of the things that, that could be done with all of this data sharing is um, a, and, and we talked about this in some of the previous podcasts with some of the browser uh, plugins and things like that that, that can be used to identify a person uniquely in order to serve them ads. Um, the more data that you allow people to see and that you share between services, there's more of a data footprint uh, online for 
attackers or people to tap into, and they could use that to produce a phishing email or to produce an experience on a website that compels you to take a certain action that you may not be aware you're, you're being led into. Um, so, you know, just be aware of that. I think a lot of the large companies definitely have your best interest at heart. Um, but, but just always keep in mind that the data that you share um, can be used. In, if there's a way to use it um, in a way that you don't expect, someone is probably going to find that and, 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 and capitalize on it if there's a way to exploit it. Uh, number five, um, kind of leading from that, so you know, as more data is shared and, and um, it becomes more available, that data footprint increases, data breaches are going to continue. That's what number five is. So stakes are getting higher as hackers attempt to you know, sway political campaigns like we heard so much about during the, uh, the U.S. presidential election recently. Ransomware is on the rise and data breaches are increasing. So as data becomes more open and shareable, attack vectors are much greater and opportunities are higher. Enterprises need to make sure they're vetting cloud and hosted solutions properly to make sure they're secure, but they also need to realize that cloud providers may be able to provide economies of scale uh, from a security aspect and make data safer than individual organizations can on their own. Um, so, you know, it's going to be a balancing act. Uh, a lot of enterprises over the past several years have been leery to put any data in the cloud um, because of security concerns or because of proprietary information concerns. Um, but the benefits out there are incredibly compelling from a cost standpoint, um, from leveraging, uh, you know, quick startup for new initiatives and things like that. Um, but realize there's, a, again, a balancing act there between can you provide as good of a security as a cloud provider like Google or Amazon, or is keeping it within your own uh, organization's borders just inherently safer? There's no, there's no one-size-fits-all answer to that. Every, every company is going to have to answer that question uh, on their own. So building on those last two, number four is that security is going to have to get more proactive. As hackers start to use Internet of Things and continue distributed denial-of-service attacks like the one we saw earlier this year that leveraged uh, you know, CCTV uh, cameras and security cameras, Companies are going to need to work together to defend against threats. Tools like Watson for cybersecurity will usher in this new era. Um, we're going to see uh, people move from predictive analytics into cognitive analytics to discover threats, identify all the assets that are exposed, and then I think what the true power is going to be is to perform a second-order threat analysis to see what other services may suffer or may be targeted next. Um, these tasks can be performed by machine clusters much faster and more completely than an army of analysts. And most companies don't have an army of analysts sitting there um, to do that 24-7. Um, but to break that down a little more, if you haven't looked at Watson for cybersecurity, it's a really interesting um, application of Watson. Um, but basically what you can do is you can, you can send some information to Watson and have it analyze it and define if it is a threat based on uh, the information that it's seen from other users or just other, uh, you know, other information that's been put into Watson. If it does identify a threat, then it can come back and tell you all of your servers or all of your assets that are subject to that same threat. So, if there is a uh, if there is a piece of software that has a security vulnerability, you send it up to Watson. It says yes, it's vulnerable to a new type of attack. And then um, it could tell you, by the way, X, Y, and Z servers also are subject to this because they have the same patch. 
Now, what I think is is a key um, a key higher level um, initiative that you're going to see, hopefully in 2017, is that not only will they be able to tell you, yes, all these other servers are vulnerable, they can also tell you because those servers are vulnerable, these services that you have are vulnerable or these clusters are vulnerable. So it's sort of a second order kind of delta approach um, to seeing when a vulnerability happens, these are what's, what are directly impacted and these are the corollary things, kind of the whole ecosystem that's subject to that. Um, so I think that will be invaluable for trying to automatically lock down breaches or automatically lock down vulnerabilities and patch them and things like that. Number three uh, is that you, this is a little bit of a divergence from what we've talked about in the last several items, but you're going to continue to hear more about blockchain initiatives, but it'll be mostly hype in 2017. According to Gartner, blockchain is nearing the peak of the hype cycle. Um, however, there are other items close to the peak like home automation and Internet of Things that I think are going to see more adoption in 2017 than blockchain. In my opinion, these others can be adopted on a smaller scale and are more readily available to the general public than blockchain-related deployments. Many people are forecasting that blockchain-related tech isn't going to hit mainstream for another 5 to 10 years. Um, but nevertheless, the concept and some of the early uses are pretty interesting, such as smart contracts, um, which was a way to define a contract and, and have it advertised and, and have everyone know whenever it's changed or, or if anyone tries to tamper with it. Um, but as a friendly FYI, I do want to uh, mention that blockchain is not automatically anonymous, as in the case of Bitcoin. So a lot of people hear Bitcoin, um, they think it's an anonymous currency. It's really not. It's, uh, I think the term is pseudo-anonymous. And so it is possible to uh, identify someone from their uh, Bitcoin transactions because the blockchain has an entire record of all of them. Um, so again, this is... Uh, uh, a lesson of the more data that you put out there, the more easy it is for someone to identify you or exploit that. Um, but again, the blockchain, uh, if you haven't heard about it, it's basically a, uh, a life-to-date list of transactions that become publicly available. So every so they, they kind of be distributed in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion and everyone can verify the authenticity of any transaction that happens. Um, there's some drawbacks in that... Uh, the infrastructure that's needed to basically verify the BitChain uh, is getting more and more high level and not every organization is able to just uh, invest in that. And also uh, the time that it takes to clear transactions through a large blockchain. Um, there have been some companies that are some proofs of concept that have, have seen some challenges with that. So again, all in all, I think this is probably five to ten years uh, down the road, but you're going to still continue to hear about projects and proofs of concept, and um, you're going to hear things in the news about it, particularly from the financial services industry. Number two, uh, the line between data scientist and analyst or programmer will blur even more. Uh, I think analysts and programmers are going to continue taking special courses here and there to beef up their statistics and data science chops. Um, and I think the demand for data scientists in 2017 will bifurcate. I think there, you're going to see sort of two demands for it. You're going to see a subset of organizations that are going to, they're going to spring for data scientists and the high salaries they command. Um, they're going to say, hey, you know, we see the value in this. We want this person. We want this title. We want to be able to say that we've got a data scientist, and we want to give them the responsibility to um, do a certain task. I think you're going to see uh, the majority of the firms, however, that are going to push their analysts uh, to, to move into that area or to get tools to do some of the low-level data science work. Um, so instead of pony up 
uh, a large salary for one specific data scientist. Um, they're going to look for tools like Tableau and RStudio that are making it easier for analysts to dabble in statistical and predictive analytics. And firms such as New Knowledge, um, which is uh, a, a company ran by the hosts of Partially Derivative, uh, which is another podcast that I'm a big fan of, are offering essentially data scientists as a service, um, which is a really interesting concept. So maybe you don't want to uh, invest in a full-time person, but you want to be able to tap into that type of knowledge. Um, so it's a, a different type of consulting that that you could uh, that, that you could tap into if you need to. Um, so between offerings like that, um, tons of online courses, ebooks, and knowledge bases that have sprung up, I think data science is is going to continue to appeal to the masses. Um, there are universities that are graduating tons of data scientists right now, and there was actually an article uh, that I read not too long ago. I couldn't find a link to it because it it just sort of disappeared into the ether of all the things I've been reading recently, um, they actually had a prediction that the demand for data scientists was going to decrease in 2017, um, that firms are sort of over the hype of having a data scientist and they're able to tap into these other things. Um, and they had a worry that too many people are going to be graduating from university and it's going to be creating a, uh, uh, a surplus of supply that demand won't keep pace with. I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, I think there's still... Uh, a lot of demand for data scientists, and I think that'll continue into 2017, but I think a lot of companies will realize that they don't necessarily have to have a specific person. There's different ways to go about getting that, particularly if your needs are only for a little bit of statistics and a little bit of predictive analytics. And so that brings us down to number one, the final item on our list, and it's got a very ugly abbreviation, BYOT. BYOT, bring your own tool. I think this is going to continue to gain momentum. Um, enterprises can no longer place all their eggs in one basket when it comes to BI or reporting tools. Uh, tools like Tableau have proven their ability to up, uproot uh, intense stalwarts like Cognos and some of the Oracle uh, BI stack. And traditional BI tools are now appearing stale and financially infeasible compared to some of these specialized cheaper alternatives. Um, I think traditional BI tools are still going to have their place in firms that have enterprise level agreements and are slow to change, but as more and more users demand features that these tools can't support, or they go out and all acquire alternatives through shadow procurement, the traditional tools and expertise are going to erode. Also as those enterprise agreements come up for renewal, I think there's going to be pressure um, on the organization by its analysts to look at alternatives, and I think there's going to be pressure from those organizations to the, the traditional tool vendors. Uh, to either become more competitive with their licensing, licensing or um, come out with new features in their products that, that compete with some of these alternatives more quickly. So with these tools, it's now more important than ever for IT organizations to focus on architectures that make a wide array of data available to the entire organization regardless of the device or the access tool of choice. What that means is good governance policies and data czars need to focus on data quality, establishment and maintenance of metadata, and publishing best practices around the types of tools and reports or visualizations that are best for specific scenarios. So instead of putting out an edict that, hey, all enterprise reporting is going to be done out of tool X, uh, they really need to say, this is how we're making data available to you. If you need new data, this is how you get it quickly. This is where you can get it. This is how you can validate um, the availability of data or the quality of it um, or the source of it. So you go off and you build your reports like you need to. Um, you build it with the device that you want, with the tool that you want, 
But hey, by the way, if you're gonna do this type of visualization, these are the tools that are best suited for it. And here's some data sets that are likely gonna be good starting points for you. So it's really about providing a foundation for analysts and for end users, instead of having them go through a full waterfall um, cycle of requirements and design and deployment to get a new report out there. Firms are gonna to need to evaluate the benefits of having multiple tools and the flexibility and productivity it provides their employees versus the supportability and procurement benefits of working with a smaller number of providers. So again, that's a very delicate balancing act. It's always easier to, uh, you know, to work with one and to work through issues with one. But again, if you have people going around doing shadow procurement of other tools, and then the person that procured that leaves, suddenly you have a vacuum that IT is gonna be asked to, to fill. So it's really better to get all of that above board and come out with a policy that says, hey, we support multiple tools, we support user or analyst choices, um, but this is how you do it. This is the proper process to request access to these tools, to request access to this data, to get data into a discovery zone or a data lake in order for many users or analysts to uh, to tap into it. So that's it, folks. That's, that's the top 10 for 2017. I'm gonna run through the headlines again, um, just in a summary. Number 10, data borders will break down. Number nine, data quality and quote unquote refined data sets will become more important. Number eight, collaborative BI and analytics will become more mainstream. Number seven, internet of things will continue to expand. Number six, converged intelligence will improve our lives. Number five, data breaches will continue. Number four, security will have to get more proactive. Number three, you'll continue to hear about blockchain initiatives, but it will be mostly hype in 2017. Number two, the line between data scientist and analyst programmer will blur even more. And number one, Biot, bring your own tool, will continue to gain momentum. There you have it, folks. That's my top 10 predictions for 2017. Uh, hopefully there's some good ones, and hopefully uh, I provide a little bit of, uh, of an oracle for you guys listening out there. Uh, we'll have to... Touch base at the end of the year to see how much of these came to fruition. Uh, but if you have thoughts on this, please uh, hit me up on Twitter at Love of Data or at Robert Fur. Um, post a comment on ForTheLoveOfData.com. You can go to both of those places to find information about the latest podcast. Uh, if you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe uh, and give us a rating to let me know how we're doing. Uh, and again, if you have questions, comments, concerns, if you're interested in a specific topic and you'd like to hear me discuss it or research it more, please reach out to me at one of those avenues. As we wrap up this year, I want to thank you all for supporting the podcast and, and listening and to those, those people that have already subscribed, thank you very much. Wish you all a very happy and safe New Year's and I look forward to sharing more information and learning new things with you guys in 2017. Until then, this is Robert Furr. Happy New Year.